Hello and welcome to season two of the Business Continuity Podcast from Data Barracks. Where season one was a crash course in continuity and disaster recovery as academic topics, for season two, we're going to zoom in and take a look at individual recovery stories to unpack how disruption happens on a moment-by-moment basis. We've got some new contributors this season, as well as some familiar voices. I'm James, the new host, and this time we're going to focus on one interview per episode to hear everyone's recovery stories in context. Welcome back. Alistair Lee is one of the few people we spoke to who took an academic route to business continuity, and he's had a varied career to date as a result. Moving between continuity roles within manufacturing, local government, a daily national publication, and an international telecoms provider. Alistair was our first interview for the more crisis-orientated season two, and his experience of continuity across a breadth of different industries was a great jumping-off point to better understand how continuity challenges vary based on different core processes they refer to. So I'm Al, Business Continuity Manager at Virgin Media. I started off by doing an MSc in Disaster Management, which included business continuity, and got an internship uh, while I was doing my dissertation at Bosch Thermotechnology. Once that came to an end, I joined Essex County Council as a business continuity officer and then as a a business continuity risk advisor. Did that for a couple of years and joined Guardian News and Media as business continuity manager, then recently joined Virgin Media. Al's internship with Bosch was another good jumping off point for the season. The manufacturing industry came up a lot in our interviews as an example of a sector for whom continuity and crisis management are not lofty, hypothetical topics, but very practical day-to-day considerations. It makes perfect sense given the nature of the work. Manufacturers make real stuff, and they have a very direct relationship with risk as a result. Physical processes can be much more difficult and expensive to recover than informational processes. That direct relationship was immediately clear to Al at his internship, and, sensing a strong culture of continuity baked into existing practices, he elected to avoid traditional continuity terminology. With some of the areas, I didn't use business continuity terminology because I think sometimes we can confuse things or or make things more complicated by trying to use acronyms or going down specific routes. But if there's something that's already working well and there's a, a good culture, I'd rather call it operational planning or create an operational manual that's a business continuity plan, work with what people understand and build on that long as the output is the same, which is you have a workaround in place that you're reducing disruptions, then that's what I care about the most. The key threats to continuity at Bosch were equipment failure on the production floor and interruptions to a fairly complex supply chain. Both challenging, but also relatively self-contained. Al's move to Essex County Council brought with it a more diverse range of risks by virtue of the council's range of services. There were a lot of services Things like adult social care, schools, children and families. You'd have things like the emergency duty team for social care workers answering calls from the public. You'd have the contact centres where the public would call that and then they would fill the call to the right department. You've got emergency planning and then you've got highways. Yeah, there was a lot of public facing services and and we did have a centralised register where we prioritised and we looked at uh, recovery time objectives and... Yeah, I remember we did have a prioritised uh, register of, of services. Preserving the continuity of such a wide range of services required a fairly systematic approach, and this is where Al found success with some business continuity planning software, 
We didn't cover business continuity software much in season one because we thought it was important to emphasize that it's not a necessary ingredient of resilience. However, for Al at the council, software became a very useful tool to both protect a large number of disparate services and distribute appropriate continuity plans to a large number of dispersed employees. A lot of my role was later developed into how to configure and maintain that system. And, and then it was predominantly training staff. And we did one day training sessions and we would spend time on training staff on what business continuity is, why we do it, how we go about it. And then we would do a hands-on, here's how you log into the system. We'd, we'd step them through how to use the system. I mean, one of the benefits was centralized cloud-based business continuity uh, information. So it was more easily accessible to get hold of your plans. If there was disruption internally, then it wouldn't necessarily knock out the system. So it, uh, it was quite a powerful tool. And, and with maintenance, it made it easy. So for example, if there was a contact change or a contact detail change, you only had to do it once and it would reflect that detail across all plans. So you don't have to spend time um, doing the same change across 20 plans. One of the main continuity challenges at Essex County Council was scale by virtue of the sheer breadth of services it sought to protect. Moving to The Guardian saw another change in recovery priorities. Daily news publishers live or die by their regularity, and any interruption to The Guardian's print and digital products represents an unacceptable risk to its survivability. His time at The Guardian would eventually lead him to participate in the crisis management process for Hurricane Sandy. It was interesting for a couple of reasons. One is, your audience is absolutely vast, and you've got a website, well, you've got multiple websites, and it was a 24-7 business and you just couldn't afford any type of disruption. Um, so the culture was brilliant because no one wanted any disruption. And again, they didn't necessarily refer to it as business continuity, but they just didn't want stuff to break. And the other one was that it got busier towards the end of the week. So I think for a lot of companies, you know, you have a busy Monday, Tuesday, and then maybe it starts scaling down on by Friday or something. Whereas at The Guardian, it increased towards the weekend. Spiking readership of The Guardian's print and digital products at the weekend placed an increased demand for their continuity capabilities. Or to frame it differently, significantly lowered their tolerance for downtime. This is partly just a facet of the industry they exist within. Continuity is both a minimum requirement to compete and an invaluable business asset. As a consequence, just like manufacturing, levels of buy-in at The Guardian were unusually high compared to other industries. Yeah, absolutely. And like I say, you just can't afford to have some of those products down. You can't afford to have the news website down and the scale of distribution's huge. Yeah, they had done it for a long time. I would say they were highly skilled at implementing workarounds. In some respects, because the culture was so enthusiastic towards business continuity, it created a mountain of work because everyone wanted engagement. One aspect to Al's continuity planning and crisis response at The Guardian was workplace recovery. Being an international newspaper of some renown and based in central London, the risks were significant. At The Guardian, I would say it was being based in central London in terms of you've got, unfortunately, this growth in terrorism generally and you've had Westminster recently and there's teams based across different locations. But also you've got a major railway station close by, so King's Cross St Pancras. So there's, there's a lot of external local stuff that you have to take into account. It's not just internal business. I asked Al if he'd ever run any large office-wide exercises to address those risks. Yeah, we did a few. One was um, 
we relocated over 100 staff over a two-day period to a disaster recovery site. And we did a, a phased relocation. And then we actually produced real content from the disaster recovery site. And we also sent some dummy content to other sites who uh, had obviously been involved in the planning just to make sure that the transmission of that material was successful and that they could receive it. Al and his team could have left things there, and I think a lot of other organisations would. They'd move different groups to the recovery sites and produce dummy content demonstrating that, hypothetically, the recovery office was fit for purpose. But as he went on to explain, Al's approach was much more exhaustive and strategic. He applied an in-depth understanding of not only the constitution of the different teams that would use it, but also their core processes and their accompanying dependencies. He quite literally made the space look and feel familiar, with the ultimate goal of making continuity feel like business as usual. This wasn't a small undertaking, so I asked Al to expand on exactly what was involved in testing the workplace recovery capability. We needed to make sure that we could actually have access to the site within a short period of time that matched our uh, recovery time objectives. Then we need to make sure that once we've got access, we could deploy the images and build the computers in a timely manner. Once you've got those computers, then we need to make sure we had the right applications installed on those images, that they were, those applications were fully up to date. So that was a really important one, because if uh, your applications aren't up to date, um, then that can cause some uh, significant issues which is why we tested every other month to make sure we had captured everything. And then you start looking at the roles. So what are the minimum staff across the different teams you need? Editorial managers, sub-editors, and, and then you've got different types of content as well. So say you've got a product, which is a website, and you've got different pages on the, on the website, and each of those content managers produces different things. And then, like you said, you've got video, which has increased enormously. And then you've got your visuals, your images, uh, which is done by another team. It was fairly sizable. We, we had a, a floor plan of the recovery site. This was a, a situation where we did actually have a, a very specific recovery site invocation plan. And we had floor plans with different zones colored. We actually put which roles would sit in which seats. So you've got that on different computers. So you may have Macs, you may have PCs, and then you may have different spec Macs. Higher spec Macs are needed for multimedia. When they logged in to those computers, it looked exactly the same as the office. Everything was in the same layout, same spec and version and all this sort of stuff. In their mind, it, it would be just like logging into a normal computer in the office. And then by having them rotate and keep introducing and raising awareness of that recovery site, both taking them there and we did tours of the site. We didn't just show them that recovery room and get them to sit down and test. We would show them things like the canteen, vending machines, how to make a cup of tea, how to travel there, parking and nearby tubes. And then we had maps and directions for how they could get there. I mean, what I'm a big fan of with business continuity in general, rather than having something that you just invoke for the disruption, Use it for general operations as well, if, if you can. If you can embed some of these practices into normal operations, then when you need to use them, it's like, well, everyone already knows how to use them. We just increased the capacity on, on this other way of doing things. Yeah. The workplace recovery site was just one piece of a wider continuity strategy that included redundancy at multiple geographic sites to ensure no interruption of the publication took place. There are different contingency 
plans in place to protect the same product, depending on how impacted or how serious the situation is, we'll implement a relevant contingency plan. There were other methods of getting content written almost immediately, which we would use and we did use for Hurricane Sandy. We had a lot of teams across multiple locations who could do the same work so we could increase capacity at a different location. We could bridge that time period and and buy ourselves enough time to do a controlled invocation. It probably wouldn't be as smooth as as the test, but I felt confident we certainly wouldn't be jeopardising any timescales. We're going to cover Al's experience of remotely managing the Guardian's recovery of Hurricane Sandy shortly. But first, I wanted to briefly cover the way Al breaks down the different stages of an incident and the questions he asks in any subsequent review of the recovery. I got this actually from 27031, which I really like, which is detection, notification, escalation, response, management, continuity, recovery, restoration. When I'm looking either at a a plan or if if an instance finished and I'm looking at lessons learned, then when we hold the lessons learned meetings, I'm always thinking, did we detect it quick enough? Or was it going for a while uh, before it was picked up? Once it was detected, who got notified? How quickly was that? What were the methods they were notified by? When that person received the notification, did they escalate to the right people? How quickly did they escalate? And then when, when did the response and the management come in? What workarounds were invoked? Were they invoked quickly enough? Or was there a gap and could have done it faster? And then how easy was it to recover the thing that's broken? And in terms of the restoration, was that done smoothly at a quiet time? And so I'm always looking at those kind of areas. I think that's a very solid basic framework to work from in the review of any crisis management and recovery activities. If anyone would know, it would be Alistair. When Hurricane Sandy devastated America's eastern seaboard in 2012, Alistair was on hand as part of the Guardian's recovery team, assisting and coordinating the remote editorial and operation staff in the UK. Communication was a strong point throughout the recovery, and as we'll go on to hear, one of the biggest factors in making the recovery so successful was taking action long before the wind started picking up. Yeah, so that was Hurricane Sandy. That was one of those situations where you've got a horrific event, but the plan just works seamlessly. I mean, one of the benefits was the journos are the first to know about stuff. (laughs) So you kind of know something's going to happen pretty quickly. We saw the storm hitting the East Coast. We knew New York was going to have a problem before the storm hit. One of the things I'm a big fan of is don't wait for an instant before responding and finding out what the issues are. Have a think about what issues you're likely to experience and then do something about it before it happens. For example, we knew that storm was going to happen about 24 hours before it struck New York. We had already contacted the teams in New York. We had checked the business continuity plan was fully up to date, checked all the staff work mobiles were up to date, circulated it with the teams to make sure they all understood what was going to happen and how we were going to work around this. We already had a conference call between New York, London and uh, Sydney so that we could switch operations across and uh, use those sites. We informed staff to charge their mobiles, laptops, because chances are you're going to have power outage, which which we ended up having. And then we made sure that all of the staff went home before the storm hit, so you obviously don't want them travelling. Obviously, uh, the first and most important thing is always to protect your staff. So we did a, a ton of work and made sure we knew who was on shift 
in the different uh, locations and how we had circulate situation updates. I circulated an impact assessment before the storm to a number of key stakeholders across the sites and I said this is the category storm, this is when it's due to hit New York. Typically in something this size we're going to expect power failure or some sort of denial of access to work premises. It's going to hit transportation routes. You've got the potential for staff to be displaced. I didn't foresee quite the extent of flooding that came, but we looked at really the resource that was going to be available. And that was all before the storm hit. We've mentioned before on the podcast that the first duty of any employer in a disaster is to protect and preserve the well-being of its employees. And it's heartening to see robust communication and compassionate continuity provisions being made for Guardian staff in spite of the distance between the recovery team and those affected. Yeah, so we waited for it. We'd already switched the operations across. The staff were flexible workers anyway, so they had the the equipment they needed. And then we waited for the storm. Then immediately after the storm, we contacted every single member of staff and we said, are you okay? Do you need any assistance? What's your status? And actually, we we had a, a lot of staff come back afterwards saying that, That kind of meant a lot to them that we were checking that that they were all right. So then we had a stat report. So we had conference calls, incident management conference calls, morning and afternoon every day. And we identified the issues, we're about to wear, who was doing what. And for that particular one, it was power outage impacted work premises. So we were monitoring Con Edison, who was the power provider. And they had um, a map where they were identifying power outages and the expected restoration times which didn't come up immediately, but we constantly monitored them. And then we were constantly monitoring the subway status. They produced regular maps on which routes were unavailable, so we were just tracking that. And then circulating a situation report. I think we actually did two sit reps a day for like uh, 10 days. We did a morning and an afternoon one. We opened up a, a spreadsheet to track issues and actions and where we are with the completion of those actions. And then we flew a couple of guys from London to Washington. So again, we didn't wait for for problems to occur. There was an important deadline coming up. So we prepped another office so that if that power outage was going to last greater than 10 days, then we'd fly um, a team from New York to the other office and they could continue working there. We were trying to uh, each step of the way proactively address issues before they happened, so to speak. The power wouldn't come back on for 10 days. And in the interim, Al and the rest of the crisis management team, or Rapid response team, as they called it, had twice daily phone calls supplemented by heavy IT presence to arrange the recovery of the office space and support staff in continuing to work remotely. They continued publishing every day with no visible impact. Yeah, we had no disruptions to our products. And I know a couple of other businesses were disrupted. And yeah, we we were quite pleased in the sense that all, all the hard work we put in place worked, paid off. So when the power came back on, we sent a team. The transportation routes and the power came back on roughly at the same time, which was quite (laughs) convenient. (laughs) We sent a team to the building to do an assessment, power everything up, check not just access to applications, but the functionality of the applications as well. The scale of work we did on that particular one, I think I did a 70 hour, over a 70 hour week. And we literally just, just continuously pushed through it uh, to make sure everything was resolved as quickly as possible and then once everything came back up we informed the guys that went to come back to to work it was probably the the most 
smooth <laughs> response we've ever done, which, which I was quite relieved about given the size of uh, the storm. Because we were um, proactively uh, trying to preempt what kind of problems we were going to have and putting stuff in place before they actually happened, it was one of those fairly rare occasions where you're one step ahead of the, <laughs> ahead of the problem, yeah. Of course, not all incidents announce their presence so courteously. Al told me another story about a chemical spill on the road near the entrance to the worksite, a freak accident that no one could have predicted, that he was nevertheless able to manage through proactive workarounds that anticipated potential consequences before they materialised. Al's main method of circumventing disruption here was to put the business into an interim state, a standby mode of operation. However, even though the cause of the incident itself was a freak accident, Al was again able to introduce proactive workarounds that anticipated potential consequences before they materialised. This time, by putting the business into an interim standby mode of operation, so that rather than waiting for an incident to develop before invoking preventative measures, he did what many of the experts this series recommended, escalated early and committed to it. There was one of these events that happened, which you never think is going to happen to you. I've, I've seen it in loads of scenarios, but I've never heard of it happening, which was a chemical truck was carrying hydrochloric acid. And it just so happened to overturn and spill uh, outside the entrance of the work premises. And you just, you couldn't make this stuff up. The chance of that happening, I don't know. But uh, fire crew came, cordoned off the road. You've got staff on site and then you've got a denial of access to the site. The first thing we did was close all the windows and doors. Fortunately, it wasn't at a key time. So for this particular work premises, the distribution was usually out uh, in the early hours of the morning. This happened uh, around midday or something. So staff were already on site. They weren't necessarily looking to leave the site and uh, we didn't need to get any trucks in for some time, which was quite fortunate. One of these things where, again, it wasn't considered business continuity, but more just sensible operations, where if there's a, a problem with either of the sites, then there was a, another site where you could increase capacity. We already had contracts in place with the distribution suppliers who we had a, a phenomenally good relationship with. They were brilliant. And we could get hold of unscheduled vehicles, reroute the distribution and, uh, and still get the product out. What we did was, again, we, we were a big fan of standby. We still invoked. So, so rather than waiting for an incident and going straight into invocation, if you know there's a situation, but you don't necessarily need to invoke anything, you can still go into standby, which means you just put all of your stakeholders, you make sure they're all informed, make sure they're all available and contactable, and you just say, this is a situation. We'll give you regular updates uh, on what's happening. Um, if it's not resolved by this time, then we're going to fully invoke and start implementing our workarounds. We're going to end with a deceptively simple piece of advice from Al that we hadn't heard before on the importance of making crisis plans usable. Crises are inherently disruptive, but as with so many other painful experiences, they're also learning opportunities. We talked about the value of incidents as an opportunity to verify that plans really work as intended in season one. For Al, Crises aren't just opportunities to verify that the plan is functional, but also that it's fit for purpose from a user experience perspective. It's easy to forget that plans are practical, living documents. Next time you're running an exercise, or indeed recovering from an incident, take note of how the plan 
fields to use and navigate, specifically around the ordering and layout of the information, and incorporate any feedback into your next review process. The value of having been through some of these things that I've learned is really what information to put in your business continuity plan. And not just that, the order of it as well. So for example, when uh, when a major incident kicks off, first thing I end up doing is phoning people to find out exactly what's happened, how bad, bad is it, what's unavailable, what what issues are we experiencing, and then we can gauge which stakeholders need to be in, involved from, from the incident management plan. Because uh, I always end up making phone calls, and when you in, invoke a business continuity plan, they end up making phone calls to invoke their teams and stuff. It's simple stuff like I put the contacts details at the front of the plan, almost in, in like the first page. Or if it's on a mobile, then I have it at the top of the app. The first thing you do is tap the button uh, on the app and you call your teams or you turn the first page and there's all the details of everyone you need to get in contact with. Uh, when you do an exercise, you validate the information in the plan, but you don't necessarily look at perhaps the layout of that information. And it, it's also... When you're responding to a disruption, depending on the incident, you can be up against time and you don't want to have to read through a lot of information to find out you know, what you need. I typically try and keep things as short and to the point, keep it streamlined. It's making it as easy, as efficient as possible. And you find that sort of stuff when you start in every disruption, I just scribble down a piece of paper timeline. So when I receive an email, when I make a phone call and, and all this sort of stuff, or if there's not time in that instant, then I'd do a review afterwards and then gather all that information. You can see what's slowing you down by looking at how long it takes you to do a task and when you make those key decisions. If it's taking too long between a couple of tasks, you can look at, you know, what information did I use to, to do that? How's that information delivered? Could I be doing that in a different way? present a different way or access via a different route so that I can reduce that time frame and make it easier and quicker. Yeah.